Well, hello again. Welcome to the Cotton Companion Podcast, our bi-weekly conversation among the editors and friends of Cotton Grower Magazine. We're talking about all things cotton. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'm the editor of Cotton Grower. And I'm sitting here today in the Cotton Room in Cordova, Tennessee, talking to our magazine's online editor, Mr. Jim Stebnan. And we are both uh, settling back in. It's hot outside. We had July 4th last weekend. And, uh, you know, we're just weathering the storm. It's kind of vacation season. It's also stay hydrated season. So, hello, Jim. Hey, Beck. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Keeping cool. Thanking God for HVAC once again. <laughs> so, uh, as with each podcast, we're going to begin today's episode with a discussion of the latest news items impacting our industry. And who better to lead that discussion than Jim here? He's the gatekeeper at cottongrower.com, and thus he's kind of our watchdog for the industry news that happens. Uh, today he's going to lead us in a discussion about uh, a pending merger among two of Cotton's major uh, companies. We're going to talk a little bit about weather issues that are coming and we're going to take a kind of quirky look at some of the uh, end products that Cotton winds up being involved with sort of downstream from your farm. So we want to jump right into that right after this short break. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Welcome back. Uh, as Beck said before we took the break, we're going to take a look at a couple of news items that, uh, that are currently floating around and, and, and possibly impacting the cotton market as well as other agricultural markets. Um, we realize that right now, you know, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, uh, if you're in your truck, if you're in your tractor cab, if you're in your spray rig, uh, you're busy. This is, uh, this is a time of year when there's plenty to do. Uh, and plenty of things to, uh, to, to keep your attention. Uh, but we want to take a look at a couple things that have just sort of been floating around for the last couple months and try to give you an update on where things might be uh, on some of these. The, the biggest one would be the potential merger of Monsanto and Syngenta. Uh, people have been watching this closely for the last two months. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth apparently. The, uh, the, the gist of the story is that Monsanto is interested in acquiring Syngenta. Um, to date, they have made two offers to Syngenta uh, in terms of, uh, of market price or value, uh, and to date, the Syngenta Board of Directors have rejected both requests, uh, basically saying it's not representative of the true value of the company. Uh, now, when you hear words like that, you generally want to say, uh, if, if you cut through everything, it basically means the offer is just not high enough yet at this point. Uh, going through, we have uh, our 
our colleagues with CropLife magazine uh, here at Meister Media have done a really good job of, of following this story. Uh, and they basically are, 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 have come to, to the, the major conclusion is that uh, most analysts who are looking at the market uh, agree that this merger makes financial and marketplace sense for both companies in the long run. Uh, most folks think that this merger has a better than 75% chance of happening before the end of the year. Now that's probably the deal being worked out before the end of the year rather than the actual final form of the company, obviously. Because uh, really truly since the early 2000s, as our friends tell us, uh, a lot of people in the market have speculated that the big six crop protection product manufacturers uh, is, are eventually going to end, wind up as, uh, as a big four. Uh, it's been roughly 15 years since we had a big merger, uh, so I don't know that we're overdue for one, but uh, I don't think anybody in the market will certainly be surprised if this one works out. Now, just uh, in recent weeks, uh, folks from Monsanto, President Brett Begeman, uh, I believe Rob Fraley, their, uh, their Vice President in, in Technologies, and, uh, and Hugh Grant, who's the Monsanto Chairman, have been going around meeting with industry organizations uh, and other farmer groups, shareholders, in both Europe and the U.S. to explain why they're looking to buy uh, Syngenta. Uh, I think it's an interesting approach that they're taking. Uh, they have, I believe, they have either had or have a meeting scheduled with the National Cotton Council folks. Uh, they had a meeting last week uh, with the United Soybean Board. Uh, so that tells me they're, they're trying to cover their bases as best as they can to, uh, to explain the reason behind this and, and what, they're, uh, what they're looking at. I, I found one of the things with interest from, uh, from a Reuters article about the meeting they had with soybean growers last week said, there's even been, a, I guess, a, a, a note or a comment that they would be willing to change the Monsanto name from the, uh, from the merged entity uh, as a way to influence or, or woo Syngenta shareholders a little bit. So we'll see how that one works out. But regardless of what, if this works and, uh, and how it's set up, uh, one of the things that will be definite in all this is it will remain a, uh, a U.S.-run company. It, there will not be any... Uh, any movement to uh, to move the company to Europe and operate from there. Everything, all the decisions and primary decision makers will still be here in the U.S. So it's just something to sit back and keep an eye on. Uh, I wouldn't expect any rapid movement on this, although you know I've been surprised before. Yeah, you mentioned uh, they are sort of allaying these fears that people would have. You know, and anytime you have a, a business move that is this monumental, I mean, you're talking about, I believe Monsanto is the world's largest seed company, uh, merging with what I believe is the world's largest crop protection herbicide company. That's correct, but don't forget, Syngenta also has a seed division. They do, yeah, they do. So, so Monsanto... Jim mentioned there were concerns about not moving Monsanto jobs overseas. Monsanto, obviously, for those who don't know, was located in St. Louis, Missouri. Syngenta, I believe, is in Switzerland. I have it in one of these stories that I've dug up to do. Uh, it's a Swiss company for sure. And so uh, that's, that is reassuring that they say they're going to keep their business, uh, the, you know, their headquarters right here uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, or in the U.S., rather. Um, 
as Jim notes, Syngenta is a seed company. I believe that there are a lot of sort of antitrust folks on either side of the Atlantic, Atlantic who are looking at this merger very closely, you know, making sure that uh, mm -hmm. there's not any, um, I guess, wrongdoing. I, I'm not the source to come to when you're talking about the business ethics of merging these two large well, I, companies. I think, I think from the very beginning, Monsanto has said that they will, they will look for to, uh, to sell the, uh, the Syngenta seed divisions. Yeah. Uh, and then apparently they do have some offers already on the table yeah. at this point. So, you know, again, they seem to be at this point going back, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, doing more due diligence, working to lay the groundwork a little bit more and, and explain the reasoning behind what they want to do. Uh, it will, I mean, let's face it, it'll have impact in all the markets all the agricultural markets, you know, regardless of the commodity. So, you know, Syngenta's big in corn and soybeans, uh, Monsanto obviously big in, in just about every crop. So uh, there will be some implications. Uh, what those will be, we'll just kind of have to wait and see if, yeah. if this whole deal works out. The, the framework, the template, for our purposes, is already there in recent history uh, when Monsanto uh, bought Delta Pine there in Scott, Mississippi. For those who don't know, uh, my mother worked at, worked at Delta Pine and was there pre-merger and, po and uh, post-merger. She's still there, actually. And so um, I remember that going down. She was there. I mean, I was still in high school when that was happening, and that was another of these deals that was, you know, it was talked about. The first sort of uh, uh, hints of it happening were probably three or four or five years from when it actually did happen. I mean, it got close and then it fell through and then it got close and then it would fall through and then finally it did wind up going through. And then, you know, we talk about them having to divest, them, divest themselves of some of Syngenta seed products or seed brands. Uh, you know, again, the template is there. This is how Bayer wound up with Stonebull, uh, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, uh, because uh, of the divestments that went on as part of those deals. So. Uh, it's something to keep an eye on for sure. One headline that I found particularly sort of interesting, raise an eyebrow at, and you don't know how much of this is poker table bluffing, uh, but there was a, a, a dateline of June 23rd, a story came out that said the headline was Monsanto says Bayer is among the options if Syngenta were to fall through. Um, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll read straight from the report here. Monsanto would approach Germany's Bayer AG about acquiring its crop chemicals business if it can't buy Syngenta, uh, said Brett, Brett Begeman, chief, chief operating officer of St. Louis-based Monsanto. Um, the, the article goes on to note more than once, however, that Monsanto is committed to acquiring Syngenta. Uh, you know, I think this is something that the company is, is serious, obviously serious about pursuing, and, and they are... Uh, kind of dogged in their pursuit. And I think it makes a certain amount of sense for Monsanto. Monsanto's big in seeds and technology and Syngenta still has a really good portfolio in, in the crop chemical side. And you step back and look at it and you can see where the two would be a good fit. But, you know, we're, we're, we're reporters and editors. We're like everybody else. We're certainly not market analysts. And, uh, you know, we'll just sit back and watch and see what happens with everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, two, two companies who have done so much in, with R&D, so much bringing new technology to this market, to cotton, you know, to our little sand pit that we get to play in. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see. I mean, these, these are companies who have done good things for our industry, so we'll, we'll sit back with our 
popcorn and keep, keep an eye on things. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to shift gears just a minute and take a look at the weather. Now, you know, weather has obviously been a big story so far this year. Uh, and I'm certainly not a weatherman, not a meteorologist, uh, don't even pretend to play one on TV or over a podcast. But I found it interesting that uh, back a month or so ago when, the, when Texas received deluges of rain that became the drought buster for them, one of the reasons that, uh, that they were looking at so much rain at this point was a, was a strong El Nino weather event and that was you know basically told to us by the Texas State Climatologist. Well recently within the last few days the US Climate, Climate Prediction Center is now projecting a more than 90 percent chance that that El Nino is going to continue through the winter and that gives basically an 80 percent likelihood that it's going to last through next spring in the northern hemisphere which is contained which of which the US is part. Um, now what does that mean for certain areas of the country? Uh, they're saying probably for the southern US we're probably looking at increased precipitation this winter hopefully in the form of rain not snow and ice. Yeah. Uh, when you move to the northern plains and this is this is they consider the you know upper 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 regions of Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, parts of Illinois, Indiana. Uh, up in that, so the further north you go, they're they're predicting above-average temperatures, uh, and in some of those areas, a little bit wetter conditions. Uh, for our friends in California, and we've been trying our best to break the drought for you after we took care of it for Texas with our uh, with our, our well-timed drought issue, drought issue in yeah. June. Uh, they're also saying this El Nino could bring drought relief to, uh, to California. At least uh, they're predicting for some parts of California. Uh, the odds are getting better toward above average precipitation, so we'll keep our fingers crossed that that works out. Uh, the downside to this, uh, and, and there's always a downside to a, to a weather effect, is El Nino, this El Nino is not necessarily going to be good news for other parts of the world. Uh, particularly parts of Asia and Australia, when when we get it, when the U.S. gets a really good El Nino year or two, uh, those countries generally get hotter and drier conditions. So, uh, you know what that will do for for crop production in in some of those other areas, we don't know. Obviously, what it will do for crop production in the U.S., uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, the prediction is uh, a little bit wetter. Uh, little above average temperatures and hopefully some relief for California over the next uh, next 12 months. Yeah. And for my purpose, I'm sitting here thinking I need to invest in covered deer stands <laughs> this for this winter because all my tree stuff, climbing stuff leaves me out in the elements. So hopefully it won't be too wet this winter. We shall see. Yeah. As, as long as we keep the ice storms out of the south, we'll yeah. be good. Yeah. Can't complain about rain, just no. not a huge ice storm guy. Now, as, as Beck mentioned leading into this, we, there's a couple things that crossed our desk in the last week that, that are just kind of demonstrate the, the quirky nature of the market in which we, uh, in which we work uh, and the market conditions that impact our industry. The first one comes out of Perth, Australia. And uh, it, it, I, I wasn't exactly sure what to, what to think of it when I first read it, but basically what you have there is a, is a gentleman, started a company, He's got uh, billions of bacteria working, as, he, as, the, as the article says, chugging down beer and wine. 
but the waste product from all of this effort and work that these bacteria are doing uh, is being harvested into a cellulose material that when, they, when it's finished out creates a material very similar to cotton. And like cotton, they said it can be worn. And so recently in Milan, Italy, at, uh, at the Expo Milano, a big fashion situation, big fashion institute or, or show, a dress made from this material from our beer-loving bacteria, which has been dubbed the beer dress, uh, made its official debut. Uh, as, as the gentleman, Gary's name's Gary Cass, uh, says that we can grow it in any shape we want, as thick as we want, as thin as we want, take it straight out of the vat, process it, put it straight onto the dressmaker's table to make into some garment. Now, okay, the last thing the cotton market needs is another competitor, particularly from beer, uh, at this point, but uh, the interesting the interesting part about this, and the thing that uh, that I think may push them toward other uses for this this product or this cellulose, is uh, the admission by Mr. Cass that the material still needs a little bit of work, including figuring out how to wash it. Right. So you know whether it's it's a uh, you know it's a it's a one-time wear material or not. I guess we'll just sort of have to sit back and see, but. Uh, you know, hey, technology is a wonderful thing. It is. Yeah, I'm shaking my head. You know, I, I, uh, I have our, uh, the Cotton Grower Twitter site uh, on my phone. I can check in on it on my phone. And so I occasionally get notified when someone mentions us. And some of the people, some of the guys who uh, check in with us the most via Twitter are actually, we have some, some people who follow our brand, our magazine, and our various offerings from Australia. So if you guys are listening to this podcast, I'm shaking my head right now. I can't believe you got this guy over in Perth making a cotton competitor out of beer. I just, surely you guys can find better use for that beer. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, the, the story that you brought up, it, it, it made me think of uh, one of the first belt wads that I went to back in 09, maybe, I think, uh, Cotton Incorporated brought in these guys from New York, from Troy, New York, who had founded this company called Ecovative. Do you remember this? I do remember. And they had they had um, uh, created this sort of basically it's a styrofoam substitute. Which uh, I am not an environmentalist by any stretch, but I do kind of I, I don't like to see styrofoam out there. It's terrible for the environment. It doesn't break down. It'll be here in 2,000 years, uh, wasting away. So uh, it's oil-based. So anyhow, this guy had created, using what he calls agricultural waste, most of it being cotton hulls that he gets from uh, various gins who he works with, right? This guy's in upstate New York. I don't know mm -hmm. how, what his shipping fees for getting cotton hulls up there are. But anyhow, they have created this packaging material that is a styrofoam substitute. And this is back in 09. I actually Googled him when I was getting ready to come and do this pod. They're still around, so I mean, there's something to be said Mm -hmm. Business-wise, if you've made it for six years, I mean, clearly they're they're profitable, they're sustainable mm -hmm. at this point, self-sustainable. So, anyhow, it just uh, you know, and, uh, to the while these yahoos in Australia are creating <laughs> this cotton sort of competitor, if you will, if like, you can laugh it off, um, you know, there are a lot of people uh, around the world, including right here in the U.S., who are doing sort of value added value stuff, neat stuff, entrepreneurial stuff with cotton. And, and to be sure, cotton, there's a reason you know Cotton Incorporated was involved in bringing those guys with this Cotton Incorporated 
does a lot to uh, sort of support folks who are doing value-added stuff for cotton. Right, and, that, and that's that sort of leads me into the second second story. Oh, well, uh, I didn't mean to step on your toes. No, that's okay. That's okay. That was a, that was a great segue. Okay. Uh, the uh, the textiles nanotechnology lab at Cornell University is uh, is currently working on ways to use cotton and cotton fiber as as they quote a canvas for creating infinite modern uses. And uh, it's kind of interesting because some of the things that they're doing is using the, the nanotechnologies that are available today, they can create clothing that kills bacteria, conducts electricity, uh, wards off malaria, uh, weaves transistors into shirts and shoes, basically turning cotton fibers into electronic components. Uh, and one of, the, one of the examples they gave is one of the students there created a dress using conductive cotton threads that when combined with ultra-thin solar panels for trim on the dress and a USB charger along the waistband, uh, the dress itself can actually, is capable of keeping your cell phone charged uh, by capturing enough sunshine. Uh, basically allowing you to stay plugged in regardless of where you are as long as you have access to, uh, you know, to the sun. Uh, they're also saying this type of technology they can embed into shirts to measure your heart rate, to analyze sweat, uh, put it into pillows to monitor brain signals, or, uh, or apply it to interactive textiles that would have heating and cooling capabilities. So this is kind of the, the, the fun, far out Star Trek kind of, uh, kind of work that's being done, but they're, the fabric that they chose to work with because it works best with these technologies is cotton. Yeah. I'm sitting. I'm just sitting here thinking that's gonna, this stuff's going to get me in trouble. I mean, I don't need my battery to last any longer than it does. My, my mama and my girlfriend both tell me I stay on that phone too long. So you know, just to stay playing around on that cell phone. So anyhow, maybe it'll be nice. Maybe it'll, maybe some of you will find a good use for it. We'll see. I, I suspect that's still far down the future at this point. It does. Sounds very uh, very futuristic and mm -hmm. very out there. So. Anyhow, very good, Jim. We will we will hold it up right there. We want to halt our news discussion so that we can take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive right into some of these latest planted, latest planted acreage reports uh, from USDA. And we want to talk uh, with a friend of the magazine, Dr. Don Shirley, about what that could possibly mean for the U.S. cotton market, or rather the cotton market in the grand scheme. We'll be right back. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Welcome back to the Cotton Companion. Uh, as we move into this next segment, we want to take a look at some of the uh, 
the, the acreage and economic issues that are impacting the cotton market right now. Uh, back in, uh, in late June, I believe June 30th, was when USDA issued its first cotton plantings report, which uh, was a, a, the first look on a state-by-state -state basis of actual cotton acres planted for 2015, or at least their best estimate. Uh, what they discovered was, uh, as we were going through, and, and as we go back and look at the early part of the season when everybody was doing projections in terms of cotton acreage, we were looking basically anywhere from a 9.4 to a 9.7 million acre crop for this year. Uh, this USDA report came back at 8.99. Some people have rounded it up to 9 million acres, but realistically we are just shy of that number at this point. Uh, that is an 18.5% decrease from last year. Uh, and if you look at the different types of cotton, the upland acres, which is the majority of the acres, obviously, uh, is down 18.4%. Uh, the ELS uh, cotton acres, uh, the Pima acres, are down to 148,000. Uh, that's roughly almost a 23% decrease. Uh, it's kind of some interesting numbers. I, I think everybody was expecting the numbers to be lower. I don't know anybody was expecting it to go quite as low as it did based on some of the historical numbers that we've had in the past. Yeah, we do, uh, you know, at the National Cotton Council's website, they keep a handy little year-by-year -year breakdown of, of uh, acreage totals dating back to 1970. And this is something just as a little uh, glimpse, sort of, this may be a little bit of inside baseball for you, but occasionally we have to go up to places like Chicago and Milwaukee and talk to people at ad agencies and give them uh, a little bit of context about uh, the cotton industry. They see us as editors, they think we know bukus more than we actually do. So uh, just as an illustration of that, I always bring this chart that the council provides about um, yearly acreage totals because it's kind of a fascinating glimpse at the health uh, of the U.S. cotton industry year by year. So this number, 8.99 8 uh, million acres across the U.S., you look at this chart, you have to go back to, uh, you, I, I remember when I first came on in the magazine 2008-2009, those were lean years. We wound up with 9.4 million acres in 2008, 9.1 million acres in 2009. To get to a total as low as what USDA is saying this year with 8.99 million, you have to go all the way back to, what is this, 1983 to find a year uh, with as low of an acreage total as we see this year. We planted 7.9 million acres across the U.S. that year. Some of you guys who are a little longer in the tooth are going to have to explain that one to me because we planted 11.3 million uh, in 82 and 11.1 million in 84 and sandwiched in between those two was this historic uh, ab abnormality, um, abnormality, anomaly rather, uh, in 1983. So, I mean, this is a historically low acreage year and there's a lot of factors that go into that region by region. I know that um, my very rudimentary knowledge of the cotton market and the things that impact these cotton prices is sort of a silver lining when you're talking about this low acreages. Well, simple supply and demand uh, uh, ideals would say, well, we've planted this low, very low total. That's going to go a long way towards taking some of these excess, sto uh, excess stocks off the global market. 
and uh, will be good for cotton prices in the long run as we move forward. Unfortunately, our good friend of the pod, uh, Dr. Don Shirley, who is an extension economist with the University of Georgia, we have been talking to him uh, today and he tells us that may not be the case. He joins us now and he is going to explain to us what this 8.99 million number means for cotton in the near run and maybe the long term. Don? Hello, Pat. How are y'all doing today? We are well. We want to thank you for joining us as always. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us about this 8.99 million acre projection and what it's going to mean for the cotton industry moving forward? Well, so far it's meant very little to nothing. Um, I think we'll have to wait and see what conditions and, and what the yield ends up being, both the U.S. and worldwide. But uh, uh, right now, this uh, this this. 8.99 number really has not phased the market uh, very much at all. And there are some reasons for that, but it's, it's pretty much been a non-factor. Uh, y'all mentioned about the acreage decline. Um, that number, 8.99, is just barely within the range of most pre-report estimates. The lowest estimate that I saw that was generally out there was about 9.1. Had some folks that thought we might come in less than nine, but generally speaking, 9.1 was on the low end of uh, most of the uh, observations of what we thought we would see. So uh, it's it's lower than really the lowest uh, within the range that we thought we'd see. Numbers really aren't that surprising. Uh, you know, we knew the acreage would be down from the March intentions number simply because if, if nothing else, simply because of all the rainfall in Texas and the potential that some of that acreage either didn't get planted uh, and or got uh, switched over to grain sorghum or something else. So uh, we knew the number would be down, but it's it's lower than what most folks thought. Don, just a quick question. After, that, uh, after the report came out, there was a, also an immediate release from USDA saying they were going to go back and recount the acres in Texas. Uh, simply because of the time they did the initial counting, uh, so much of the state's crops or, or fields were still reeling, I guess, from the uh, from the flooding and, and weather issues. Uh, do you think that's going to have any impact on, on the final numbers when we look at them in August? That's a good question, Jim. Uh, they, they are, uh, NAST is going to resurvey cotton in Texas. Say that will be resurveyed. Whenever the survey is, is, is done, is what acreage do you have planted and and will plant? What acreage have you planted and will you plant? So it's it's an open-ended question, and it's that open-ended part. You know, obviously, when the survey is done, some acreage is already planted, but you're not through. So uh, NAS wants to make sure that that part of the number is uh, accurately reflected uh, and uh, because of the rainfall, because of the planting delays, we were past the crop insurance deadline in, in some areas. Um, they just want to make sure that they get that number right. But let me caution our listeners that uh, just because we're doing a resurvey doesn't mean the numbers going to change. They are redoing the, the survey in Texas and 
there's reason to change the number, uh, which if you include the small amount of uh, extra long staple cotton in Texas, it was a little over 5.2 million acres. Uh, if there's reason to believe that that number is high or low, uh, then they'll change it. But just because they're resurveying it doesn't mean that they that it's automatically going to be changed. Uh, they just want to make sure they got it right. Don, I want to ask you uh, about your neck of the woods over there in Georgia. It looked like uh, Georgia acres, despite fluctuations elsewhere, comparatively are staying fairly stable. Um, why is that? Why is Georgia so insulated from these fluctuations that ha happen elsewhere in the cotton belt? Well, you know, we're down 20% now from last year, but... Um, is it not? Are y'all still north of 1 million? Uh, yes. Well, now, I thought the Georgia number would be a little bit larger than that. I was thinking 1.15, maybe 1.2. That's been my number all along. But when the numbers came out at the end of last month and I saw that we've got a projection of 800,000 acres of peanuts here in Georgia, which would be the largest acreage since 1991. I had been here one year when we planted 900,000 acres. Um, so um, when I saw the peanut number, then I knew the, the cotton number uh, from March was pretty much right on March. The March report said we plant 1.1, and the report at the end of June said 1.1. So um, if it were not for the fact that peanuts are such an attractive crop to our growers uh, under this farm bill, um, then we would have planted in that 1.2 to 1.25, I think, million acres. But um, unlike the Mid-South and even up in the Carolinas, corn and soybeans just don't, from an agronomic perspective and from an economic perspective as well, they just, we're not as flexible. We, we just can't, uh, we, we can't grow corn and soybeans from an agronomic perspective, um, particularly non-irrigated. We very seldom would grow non-irrigated corn here. Uh, we just don't even try it on most of our farms. But uh, uh, I'm not surprised by the 1.1 number given the given the peanuts that we that we've got going uh, gone in the ground out there. Okay, Don. Another another question for you. We've we've been talking about the Planted Acres report, and last week USDA brought out their uh, you know the the World Supply Demand report. Uh, it, it, it appears that the cotton market was looking at that report with great anticipation and we sort of had a boost in prices for a couple of days. The report came out. Uh, I think people appeared to be a little disappointed and prices dropped. What, uh, what gives with that and what should growers be looking for at this point? Well, um, I, I think the market was looking for something less than four. Right now we've got the crop estimated
market. Um, the other big thing I think was uh, China. Um, we USDA adjusted the supply debt, the supply demand numbers from the 2014 crop year for China, and that gave us. Uh, uh, a little over a million acres more cotton on hand in China right now than we thought we had a month ago. And then the other thing that happened was that they dropped China's uh, textile mill industry use of cotton, uh, dropped that um, by uh, half a million uh, bales or more than a million. So, um, you know. That, the, in, in combination, resulted in increasing China's uh, stocks by two and a half million bales. So that was really, a, all of that together was just more than the market could stand. And uh, um, But fr frankly, I think the market's held in there pretty well. Uh, we're still, as we talk today, we're still uh, on the north end of 65 cents, December futures today. So. Um, you know, the market's not completely falling out of bed. We're still holding in that uh, nickel to six cent trading range we've been in for the better, better part of nine months now. Do you see that range changing anytime soon, or are we just, are we just better off settling in and, and living with it for right now? I think we're, we're pretty much settled in until, uh, again, there's a, still a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, if the U.S. crop gets bigger, and we talked about this earlier, if, if, if the yield comes in uh, a little more than what we think right now on the numbers, if, if the U.S. crop is, is bigger than 14 and a half, um, that's going to push us down, I think, to, that, to the lower end of that range we've been in. We'll be down on around 62, 63 cents. But... Um, there's so much uncertainty out there. China, as everyone probably knows, China made their first offer of their cotton sales from government reserves, and that was much less than what was expected. And um, I think we have yet to know what's really going to happen in China. They say they're going to sell government cotton. Fine, but nobody's buying it not being bought nearly to the level that uh, the government would like to see. So if that continues, then there's going to continue to be a need for uh, for importing uh, good quality cotton. And uh, certainly the, a good share of that will come from the uh, U.S. growing. Don, I wonder, and, and this may be, uh, I don't know, a little... A little out of the scope uh, of our purposes, but when you have a situation like the USDA suddenly reassesses and rediscovers a million more bales in the Chinese reserve, that sort of unpredictability can't be good for prices, can it? I mean, it, and I guess the larger question is how do we not have a more clear grasp of just what is going on there in China? I guess how does the USDA wind up being the the uh, final sort of most reliable indicator of how many bales are there in China. Well, I haven't looked at uh, exactly what was revised from the 2000. 
Sure. In the July report that just came out, USDA added one and a half, or excuse me, 1.2 million bales to the cotton that China's got on hand right now. Now, I haven't looked back at the, four, at the 2014 numbers. That could have been realized because of revisions, not in the stocks number, but on the supply and demand numbers in China for 2014. For example, if they changed the production number, if they changed the mill use number, then that, that would have resulted in carrying more cotton into the 15 crop year. So they didn't just all, you know, find another 1.2 billion bales of cotton. That could have come from revisions that they made on both the demand side and the supply side. And then you add to that a million and a half bale reduction in what USDA expects China to use in their own mills this year. And the total is that two and a half million bale increase in stocks that we talked about. There's a lot of concern. There's been a lot of uh, news lately about about Greece um, and their financial and their economic situation. A lot of concern about China in terms of uh, their growth and uh, slowdown in uh, growth there, and that kind of ripples itself not only through cotton but all of the commodity markets. Okay, so well. We've got sort of these uh, developments in China that are maybe driving driving uh, the market south. If I if I'm a U.S. cotton grower, give me a silver lining. Is there anything? I know you said there's a lot of unpredictability out there, meaning that something could occur to to send prices the right direction. Uh, can you give me a scenario where that could happen? Well, I think if uh, if the U.S. crop doesn't grow, if uh, China's mill use and their and their need for good quality imports uh, continues to be strong. Then uh, I think we stand a chance of, of having cotton in the upper 60s, maybe even testing 60 cents. So the one thing that I'll, I'll that I'll mention is that if you look at USDA's numbers every every month that they put out these supply and demand numbers. Down there at the bottom of the column, they have they have what what is called average price of cotton. And uh, if you look at the numbers, they're projecting that the price of cotton for 15 will average from 54 to 70 cents. Well, that tells me they must think 70 cents is possible. There's some sort of mix of factors out there, or some scenario that that uh, could lead to that. So, uh, you know, not all hope is lost. I, I think producers ought to go ahead and take some protection. I know they're holding out for 70 cents, but uh, given the circumstances that we're under, taking some protection a little bit less than that, just to know that you've got some of your cotton protected would probably be a, be a good thing to do. Otherwise, realize that you've got the loan there, and if you take the loan, plus a gain or the cash market plus a LDP um, should where we are now if not better in terms of uh, total money and again concentrate on producing quality fiber we expect there to be the same strong 
quality for this year's crop that we had on last year's crop. So, yeah, the market's down, but you can add another three or four cents to it by uh, producing good quality fiber that'll that'll have an export market. I gotcha. Well, you kind of you touched on my my wrap it up question, my last one to you. I know that you and other of our economist friends have been saying, you know, let's let's keep our eyes open for 70 cent cotton. You've been thinking as a possibility. I know this these some of these developments in China and things are were kind of no way for you to predict those. Are you still uh, do you still see 70 cent cotton happening in this year? tell you what, uh, Don, we sure appreciate your expertise as always. Uh, we are going to leave it there for now, but we will for sure have you back join us with us uh, to join with us uh, in the near future. So again, we thank you for joining us from over there in Georgia. Thank you to both uh, you and Jim for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay, keep cool over there now. We're touching 100 today. Touching 100 here too. Oh, man. All right, well, take it easy. All right. All right. That'll just about do it for this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We again want to thank uh, a friend of the magazine, Dr. Don Shirley. Now, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please go ahead and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a rating and let us know what you think about, about our pod. Um, you can reach out to us on social media and let us know what you think about our program as well. Please do. You can find us on Twitter at Cotton Grower Mag. And uh, on Facebook, you can find us by simply searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Uh, you should be finding your the latest issue, the July issue, in your mailboxes over the past week. By the time you're listening to this, uh, it should be hitting your mailboxes right now uh, in the next few days as we speak. So uh, if you haven't seen your issue, please reach out to us and let us know. We want to get that thing in your mailbox ASAP. So. This podcast is produced by Mark Andinelli. He works at the Mothership, Meister Media Worldwide, in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'll be back with you in two weeks on the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Jim Stedman, we urge you to keep cool out there. Best of luck to you and your farm.